Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by Neurobloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Chris Polly. He's a project manager of the Muon G2 project at Fermilab. So we're going to talk about uh, what this means for physics. So, Chris, thanks for coming. Hi, Rich. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to come out and tell you a little bit about the science we do. Yeah, um, for people that don't know, what kind of activities go on at Fermilab in general? And then uh, how does this project interface with that? Yeah, yeah. Let me say a few words about Fermilab first. So I'm a, you know, I'm a scientist. Uh, Fermilab is one of the Department of Energy national laboratories in the country. Um, Fermilab is unique amongst the national laboratories, and you can kind of get a sense of that uh, just from sort of the mission statement of the lab. Uh, the mission statement of the lab is really to study, you know, physics at its most fundamental level to understand, you know, space, time, energy, and matter, and the most basic principles behind the forces that govern all the interactions amongst the particles. So it's really cool, you know, it's a uh, it's a mission statement that's almost as cool to go where no one has gone before. Uh, and in some sense, that's actually what we're doing uh, with the science frontiers that we're pushing at the laboratory. Yeah, so just to give you a sense of what that means and what kind of science we, we do generally at the laboratory, uh, we're really out to kind of answer the big, big picture questions of, you know, our existence, our place here in the universe and how the universe works at its most fundamental level. Um, in that sense, uh, I think we appeal uh, to the nature of all humankind, where we really, you know, would like to understand uh, what is this miraculous place we live in and, and how does it work? And so, and so some of the big questions that we like to study, just to give you some examples, um, you know, when we look out in the universe, uh, we see lots of matter, lots of, lots of galaxies uh, made out of matter. But for some reason, we don't see any antimatter in the universe. Uh, that's very puzzling to us because those of us that study the fundamental interactions at their most basic level know that the physics behind matter and antimatter is very similar. And so, and we, you know, we can look out in the universe, we can see the cosmic microwave background, the evidence that the universe started from a big bang, but we don't really understand as the universe evolved, what happened to that antimatter. Um, so we design experiments to try and understand that. For instance, we, we, since, 
well, quick question. How do we know that there was significant antimatter? Did it have to be in order for the model to work in the beginning? Yeah, because, you know, we, we think, it, you know, in the, in, the, in the Big Bang, we know that a huge amount of energy was created, and then that energy is converted into mass. And we know through things like Einstein's E equals MC squared uh, that the energy, the energy turns into matter. When we do those experiments in the laboratory, you know, we find basically equal parts of matter and antimatter are produced. Um, there's some small imbalances, but not enough to really account uh, for the fact that we don't look out and we see any matter in the universe. But, you know, that's just one of one of the big questions. I'm just trying to give you a feel. So overall, for the kind of things we do, we also um, in our astrophysics group, we look out and we try to understand the acceleration of the universe. You know, there used to be a question 20 years ago about whether the universe was eventually going to stop expanding and then gravity would pull it all back together into a big crunch. Well, as our scientific uh, instruments got got um, sharp enough, we were very surprised to find that the universe is not just expanding, it's accelerating in the way it's expanding. And whenever there's an acceleration, there has to be some kind of force, you know, based on F equals MA and basic, basic understanding of, of how acceleration works. And so that's called the dark energy. And we don't really understand what is the source of the dark energy that seems to be blowing the universe apart. So at Fermilab, we do all sorts of experiments. We do deep underground experiments where we build very sensitive detectors. Uh, We build telescopes that we put on top of mountains. And of course, uh, at our heart, we are an accelerator laboratory. We're Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory. We're the home of the, of the high energy physics program in the United States, and we're the stewards of the de- development of accelerator technology. And so a lot of what we do are experiments where we just do them terrestrially, making sources of these fundamental particles to really understand how they interact uh, and if we've really found all of them that are out there to find. So that's okay. Why so I, what is, what is the um, the muon G two project about? So the muon G minus two experiment that's that's what I work on, and it's one of these um, it's one of these accelerator accelerator based experiments where we accelerate you know standard particles. In our case, we use protons that we get from a bottle of hydrogen gas. You strip off an electron, you know, and then you just have a bare proton. We accelerate those protons to extremely high energies. We smash them into targets. And then on those targets, we make more exotic particles, particles that once they're made uh, might only live from a few billionths to a few millionths of a second. And that's why you need an accelerator to study them, because you can't just go out and scoop up a clump of dirt uh, and, you know, and find these particles inside the inside the clump of dirt uh, because they will have decayed and gone away and converted back into more standard stable particles. So in particular, the particle that we study is called the muon. Um, that's why we call the experiment muon G minus two, and I'll get, get to the rest of it in a bit. Um, and muons, you can kind of think of them as electrons. Uh, they're, they're very similar. They have the same electric charge. They have the same kind of spin properties. You know, we now know these fundamental particles in many ways behave as though they're little spinning tops, uh, which is, of course, kind of a mind boggling concept because we also believe them to be point particles. Uh, so what does it mean to have spin? and mass and all those properties when you actually, you know, don't think you have anything, you know, any, any radius. Uh, so, but the muons, as I said, they're very similar to electrons, but they're also different in some very important ways. So first of all, uh, they're about 200 times heavier. And that's important because the physics we use them to study is, is more likely to interact with a more massive particle. And so although muons don't live very long, they're more advantaged to use for the type of physics that we study than electrons, uh, which are stable, uh, 
because you know they do have these these this ability to interact more with heavier heavier particles. And so the muons, the way they differ, so as I said, they're 200 times heavier. They're also unstable. So once you make one, they only live for about two millionths of a second. Um, so you don't get very long to work with them. Uh, when they disappear, they immediately blink out of existence. And in their place appears an ordinary electron, just like an electron you'd find circulating around an atom. And two neutrinos are emitted. And the neutrinos go propagating out through the universe to rarely ever interact again. And, you know, it's not like the muon is made of an electron and two neutrinos. Again, when it spontaneously disappears and it suddenly, you know, in its place, these three other particles appear. So the thing we're particularly interested in with the muon is precisely determining its magnetic moment. Just to give you an idea of what the magnetic moment is, um, you know, the, the most common way people think of magnetic moments is if you think about having a loop of wire where you have current circulating in the wire. If you take that loop of wire and you put it inside a magnetic field, um, that loop of wire will feel a torque. It will want to, you know, align itself where the loop um, is sort of perpendicular to the direction of the magnetic field that it's in. Um, this is, of course, the generate the principle behind how we generate electricity. Uh, except in that case, you know, you know, we we build coils of wire and then we rotate magnets or we rotate the wires themselves to generate electrical current, you know, that's how turbines and windmills, dams, and, you know, fossil fuel powered turbines all, all work basically on that principle. So that that's what the magnetic moment is. It's fundamentally sort of the way charge and current interact with magnetic fields. Now, the reason magnetic moments are particularly interesting for these fundamental particles, uh, like, like the muon, you know, the muon has an electric charge, and it has this spin property that we say makes it kind of like a spinning top. And so you can think of if you have charge and a spinning object, that's kind of like having a loop of electrical current. And that means these particles have an intrinsic magnetic moment to them. Uh, just as they are traveling along through space and time, they have an intrinsic property, just like they have mass and they have charge. They also have spin and they have a magnetic moment. Now, magnetic moments have been kind of a, a, when it comes to particle physics, have been an interesting thing to study for quite some time. And let me just give you a historical example that's easy to understand why magnetic moments are so cool. If you were a, phys a physicist around the turn of the 20th century, and you were, you, know, you were starting to really understand the world, the periodic table, you understood there were these electrons, and you uh, were to try and predict what you think the magnetic moment of the electron would be you would you would find i maybe i need to step back first and explain the other part okay, okay. so in in the title of the experiment muon g minus two that g minus two g, g is just a number and what we're really and it's a number that is proportional to how strong the muon's magnetic moment is it's a kind of a factor we just defined out front to say to be able to talk about how strong the internal magnetic moment is of an electron or a muon or a fundamental particle. And so interesting thing, back to the story at the turn of the last century, is that if you were trying to predict what G should be for the muon, what its magnetic moment ought to be, you would predict as a classical physicist that G should be one. But with the advent of relativity and the understanding of quantum electrodynamics um, and the development of, of Dirac's famous equation, uh, the prediction changed from being an expectation that G should be one to the expectation that G should be two. 
Um, and so in some sense, that's a, that's one of the ways we know that relativity and quantum electrodynamics are correct. And that's how the universe works because you would grossly mispredict something like the G factor of an electron if you didn't, if you didn't add those components of the theory. Um, and so as you might already be able to guess, we name our experiment G minus two, uh, because it turns out the G factor for these fundamental particles is not even really exactly two. There's something very new that comes in. Um, and I'll come, come back to that in just a moment, but let me just continue with one other historical example that's easy to understand. Um, you know, the electron is a spin one half particle and the proton is also a spin one half particle. So about the time people were understanding that the electron G factor should be two, there was a question about what, well, what should it be for the proton? And of course, at the time, it was known that the proton was also a spin one half particle with the same charge and some very famous theorists of the day we won't call them out, um, said, said, you know, why would we even bother to do that experiment? We know G is going to have to be two because the theory is so beautiful and we know protons are spin one half particles with the same charge as the electron, although opposite. About the proton, you know, so some good experimentalists went out and decided to determine, you know, to do a measurement of what that G factor was for the proton. And they found it was extraordinarily different. It was like five point something. It wasn't even close to being two. And the reason that is, is because we now know that protons are not truly fundamental particles. We know protons are actually made of stuff. They're made of three particles we called quarks. Um, and in addition to those quarks, the valence quarks, there's a whole sea of other quarks and gluons that are always popping in and out of existence around the, uh, the proton. And it's because of those three valence quarks and the sea of other stuff that's emerging around them that they're not a fundamental point particle. They still have the same charge, but now the charge is all circulating around inside a ball that has a finite size. And that leads to the proton having an extremely different magnetic moment. And so we knew that, you know, sort of like 19, 1930s, uh, but it wasn't really until the 1950s that we really started to truly understand the quark nature of protons and what the true fundamental particles are that are inside the proton and why the proton is not the same as an electron because it's actually a composite particle made of a bunch of stuff with a bunch of charge swirling around inside of it. Okay, so now let me bring you to why the muon is cool. The muon, on the other hand, as far as we know, it's not made of anything. Um, and we've, we've smashed positrons and electrons together at extremely high energies at other particle accelerators. And every experiment we do basically is consistent with the with the with the notion that these are two point particles slamming into each other so so the way that g does start to differ from two though is really really is really cool so it turns out every particle in the universe as it's traveling you know even through the deepest darkest outer reaches of space is never truly alone um, as particles travel through space and time they're surrounded continually by an entourage of other particles that are blinking in and out of existence around them. Much like that proton example I just gave, where we now know there are all these quarks and gluons that are suddenly appearing from nowhere and disappearing. That's actually true for any fundamental particle. They kind of have a cloud of these other particles that are following them wherever they go, continually blinking well, so in and what, out. So what, what happens if a particle then is traveling in a vacuum, like true, like high, high, high vacuum versus... Um, you know, let's say at atmosphere, I mean, in the absence of any other particles around a given particle, very few, does that promote the winking in and out of other particles out of the vacuum? Or does this happen regardless of the medium in which the particle travels? 
Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Yeah, it's, it's, it's regardless of the medium, uh, because the distance scale that these particles are all flipping in and out of existence is actually at such a small distance scale that, you know, whether, whether the parent particle is traveling around and banging into an atom here or there it doesn't really matter. This process goes on all the time. And it's more of a property that's intrinsic to the particle as opposed to being a part of the environment that it's in. That's a very, very good question. And so I, I mainly just... Do you, do you, um, quick question. Do you think the particles that wink in and out of existence, are they critical to the stability of, let's say, the magnetic moment of a proton? Like, would it not be that if it didn't have its complement of, of virtual particles coming in and out of existence? Are they necessary? Well, I mean, the proton we now understand pretty well, and we, uh, you know, we can actually make predictions of that magnetic moment. So we 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 pretty well, you know, understand that protons are complex objects that are always made of multiple particles. Um, they always have three valence quarks swirling around in them, in addition to the others. So if I'm imagining, let's say, just a you know proton traveling through space, and you know, from what you're saying, it seems like there's a, again a, a cloud of particles that come in and out of existence. But as they come in and out of existence, would that change the magnetic moment of a proton? Would that change any of its properties? Or oh. does the invariance of them come from just the nature of the particle itself? Yeah. So talking about the proton starts to get a little more complicated because it is a multi, it is a, it is a composite particle made of other particles. And it's true that every one of those particles that it's made of will also have its entourage of particles blinking in, around, in and out around it. But the bulk of the reason that the magnetic moment of the proton is different from the expectation of two is just because of the nature of its structure, not these cloud of particles blinking out in and out of existence, although they do contribute to changing its magnetic moment um, at a smaller level. So that that's true. But if we stick to the muons, in fact, that's why we study muons. That's why they're so valuable for the physics I'm about to describe is because they are simpler the physics we're trying to understand, if you tried to do it for a proton, you wouldn't be able to do the theoretical calculation of what you expect for the magnetic moment with enough precision to use the proton itself to probe for new particles, which is what we're doing with the muons. So with the muons, because they're a simple point particle and they, you can, you can, you can, in our standard model of particle physics, you can calculate how often the particles that we've discovered are blinking in and out of existence around, uh, say, the muon. And so the idea is to go out and calculate very, very carefully, theoretically, what do you expect from the quarks, you know, the strong sector, the gluons? What do you ex expect from the exchange carriers, the W and the Z bosons, the neutrinos, the Higgs boson? There's basically seven, 17 um, unique particles that really 
form the true periodic table of the universe. And we can calculate how much each of those 17 particles should be contributing to the magnetic moment of the muon. And so the goal of our experiment is to go out and make such a precise measurement of it that not only might we see the existing 17 particles, we might see the traces of particles we haven't yet discovered. Um, one of the big questions that I, that I kind of reserved talking about till now um, was the dark matter in the universe. We look out in the universe and we see there's much more mass associated clustering around galaxies than we can explain with the visible matter, with the stars and the planets and the aliens and their spacecraft. We just can't figure out where all this additional mass is coming from. And it's not a small factor. It's like they're five times more massive than they should be if you tried to add up uh, how much visible you would expect from their visible light spectrum. And we can see that this mass clumps. So we know it interacts gravitationally, but we have no idea what it is. And that's why we call it the dark matter. Uh, we believe it could be particle in nature, uh, just like the Higgs bosons that we're swimming through all the time right now. It could be a field of particles that we're swimming through all the time that only interacts gravitationally and is therefore very, very hard to detect. Um, our hope is that it has a small way that it interacts with standard model particles besides gravity. And if so, it could be part of this entourage of particles that it's appearing. And so really what we're trying to do with this magnetic moment measurement is answer the question, um, is there an 18th particle or more than an 18th particle? Are there other new particles we haven't yet discovered in the universe that would help us explain things like the dark matter? There's a there's an even more complicated concept. We, you know, in 2013, we went out and conclusively showed that the Higgs boson was there. It sort of completed the standard model. The equations of physics for many, many decades had been pointing to the fact that a Higgs boson had to exist. In fact, we could even predict the mass that the Higgs boson should be based on other precision measurements we had made. But we finally discovered it. And it turns out it was right, the, right at the mass that we expected. But that's a puzzling value for theorists in particle physics, because naively, you would expect the Higgs to be much, much heavier. There's no reason that it should have been so light. It should have, you know, kind of the natural thing would have been for the Higgs to be so heavy that we wouldn't have been able to discover it at particle accelerators. Um, but of course, we built particle accelerators to discover it because we had all this other evidence showing us that it was probably going to be light. We don't understand. Well, quick, quick, um, quick, quick sure. question here about dark matter, if you would. Yeah, sure. When you look at, um, I don't know, a solar system or a galaxy and you said the matter appears to cluster, does, okay, does the visible matter correlate with the, the dark matter? So does the dark matter sit in the same places where the visible matter is or does it, I don't know, tend to cluster differently than visible matter? No, that's a, that's a very good question. And there's a, there's study, there's, you know, astro, astro, astrophysical observations we've made. Uh, for instance, uh, one of them involves looking at the bullet cluster. And what we can tell is that the dark matter spreads, the dark matter cloud is larger than the galaxy itself. So it, it doesn't, it doesn't just mimic the mass distribution of the visible matter. It's like the visible matter is, is more clumped at the center and the dark matter extends out for a, a larger diameter around the galaxies. And we see this in what multiple. Is that, what does that tell you about its properties though? And it has the different distribution. Does gravity affect it differently? Does it interact differently with gravity? It's a good question. It's a good question. I'm I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. The, re the reason we know it clumps gravitationally because we do see it um, in association with these galaxies. Whether it could have a slightly different gravitational interaction 
I think that's possible, but it's not, it's not my particular area of expertise. I'm a, you know, I generally know about it, but it's uh no problem. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't think we could, uh, I don't think we could rule out it having a, a slightly different gravitational interaction. I don't, all we know is it seems to be clumping gravitationally in some way. And we see this in a number of ways, by the way, it was first kind of observed by looking at spiral galaxies, like our own Milky Way. And if you look at the rotation rates of the arms of those galaxies, they're not, they're rotating at a very different rate than you would expect based on how those arms um, would rotate. If it was just based on the visible, the visible light we see in the density that, you know, then tells us about how dense those arms are. Um, that was one way, but then we've seen it in a number of other ways. Uh, we see it through a, a process called gravitational lensing um, where we look at, and you, you can watch one galaxy pass behind another galaxy and you can measure how much, it's kind of funny because, you know, because of Einstein's relativity, uh, we know that matter itself bends space-time. It makes little 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 divots in the space-time continuum. And so if you have a galaxy that passes behind another galaxy, suddenly the light coming from the back galaxy in the background has multiple choices of which way it can go. It can either have a the shortest distance actually becomes, you know, going to the left or going to the right. And so when we have an object that lenses, suddenly what was a point source of light will suddenly become a crescent or a circle around the mass in the foreground. And based on how much, uh, and based on measuring how that crescent forms, you can infer how much mass must be in the galaxy in the foreground. And it's yet another way that we can tell that there's a lot of missing mass that we can't seem to account for. So this has now been shown by two or three different, very independent sets of observations. And so we're very confused by the dark matter and what it might be. But okay, we're continuing on. Thank you for going into that. Yeah, no problem, no problem. And the uh, the Higgs mass, which was the other thing I was going to point out, you know, naively we expect that to be much heavier. And um, the easiest way to make the Higgs mass lighter is to have another set of particles interacting again, kind of through these sort of virtual where particles are emitted and reabsorbed, um, sort of, sort of mechanisms. One way to bring the Higgs mass down is to have another set of particles that they're interacting with. Um, and there's a very elegant theory called supersymmetry that would predict for every particle we have, we've discovered so far, there's sort of a mirror particle where the spin properties are exactly uh, exactly opposite. So for every every spin one-half fermion particle, we know there's a boson. Well, we don't know. We, the theory predicts or suggests there should be a boson. Um, and we call those theories supersymmetric theories because it was sort of would build a new supersymmetric table where the 17 particles we have would kind of have mirror entries. Um, it's elegant mathematically. Uh, we haven't yet found any direct evidence of it. But it's one of the most elegant ways you could figure out, you know, you can predict why the Higgs mass is small. And it's also one of these theories where you, if those supersymmetric particles existed, you would expect them for sure to be appearing as part of the entourage generating the muon's magnetic moment, or at least the part of that magnetic moment that makes G differ from two. So that's why we do it. Probably at some point want to know what we found when we ran the experiment last year that's what well, before that what, what do you think this complete picture of the properties of all these particles will will show you even if there is no 18th one if 17 is all there is, just a more complete description of all their properties what do you think you'll see 
Well, if, if we, you know, if we run, if we run experiments and they don't find evidence of new particles or evidence of new forces, then we still have the big questions I've been discussing that we need to answer. And we have to start looking for different answers to those big questions. Um, so maybe that answers your question. So the real problem is we have, we have these big questions. What's the dark matter? What's the dark energy? Where did the matter in the universe go? How's the Higgs boson so light? Those questions exist no matter what. Uh, whether or not we find the answer to them is, is an 18th particle or or something else we haven't thought of yet. And there are other okay, theories. Gotcha. Yeah, and there's right, other so theories. Like some, you know, some people try to build, uh, you know, modifications to gravity that would, you know, provide a, you know, gravitational model that could explain um, these mass measurements of galaxies without needing to invoke a cloud of particles surrounding them but they're starting to become pretty heavily disfavored because they can't seem to explain all of the evidence that we've now gathered. So, but you know, this is, there is, a, um, is there a force described of the interaction of the, so first of all, what do you call the particles that wink in and out of existence, the cloud around a given particle? Is there a name for that? So, sometimes people refer to that as the quantum foam. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, those particles um, are just the 17s, you know, particles we know about. And so because of the theory of quantum electrodynamics, we know that electrons and photons are constantly popping in and out of existence because of understanding the strong force. We know quarks and gluons are, are always popping in and out of existence around, around the muon. Uh, because of electroweak, we know WNZ boson, WNZ bosons and neutrinos. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that entourage of particles, we know for sure the existing particles are doing that. And that's, that's why, uh, if we, when we go out to determine the G factor of the muon, uh, many, many decimal places in it, in that the calculation are already described, are already known, um, by the. So what I'm saying is, um, do the, do the fundamental forces explain also the interaction of one particle's quantum foam with another particle's quantum foam, for lack of a better term? Or is their interaction of their two entourages uh, cause the or lead to the arising of other forces get still? Those particles that appear and disappear are really just the standard particles, and they appear because of the standard forces we know about, um, along with like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that allows us to violate things like conservation of energy for a very short amount of time. That's how what enables them to even blink in and out of existence is the fact that the universe is fuzzy at that level. But once they appear, you know, they just, they just have the same properties that the, you know, that the particle that's just propagating through space all the time has. It's just, they don't get to exist very long. Uh, once they pop into existence, they're kind of, they're kind of cheating the world by violating conservation of energy. So they can only do that for a very short amount of time. Okay. Gotcha. So again, what, what's the utility of figuring out, um, you know, your project in particular, muon G minus two. Yeah. The utility, the utility in it is really, it really comes back to the, the mission of the laboratory itself that I mentioned earlier. Our, our goal is to really study the fundamental forces, the matter that the universe is made out of at its most basic level um, and how that interaction happens as things propagate through space and time. The reason we do it you know, we, we had a famous, our, our famous first director uh, was asked a very similar question by, by Congress. Why should we fund this endeavor? And he has a, a beautiful statement, and I should just read it to you, but I can paraphrase it, uh, where he said, you know, the reason we pursue this kind of science um, is really 
for the same reason we pursue art and we pursue, pursue music and we uh, spend a lot of resources on, um, on things that otherwise you would say, what is the purpose of that? The purpose of that is that humans have a natural curiosity and we're driven to understand this beautiful world we live in and, and make beautiful things. And so, and so that's really, that is really the outcome. That is really what we're looking for when we do experiments like this um, is trying to, trying to really understand the basics just for the simple reason of wanting to expand humanity's knowledge. And, you know, once you know about one of these fundamental interactions or these fundamental forces, um, then you, you quite often will figure out, you know, spinoffs and, you know, things from, that will come from that better understanding. Um, but that's not the primary reason we do it. We also produce a lot of technological spinoffs. Um, for instance, the uh, World Wide Web was started at our sister, sister, uh, our sister laboratory CERN um, in Europe. And a lot of the magnet technology that you see around today, the MRI magnets that have been such a huge contribution to the medical world and are doing our medical imaging, those were developed because we developed these high field magnets in the realm of uh, trying to build better particle physics accelerators uh, that enabled us to really, to really, you know, have MRI magnets that are used everywhere for applications now. PET scanners, uh, you know, all the detector technology that we use for PET scanners, positron emission tomography, all those detectors essentially started as particle physics detectors that then found their way into medical applications. So, you know, we do a lot of great, great things for society, but our fundamental reason we exist is to, to really just try and understand the universe to satisfy humankind's curiosity. Well, very good. Where can people find out more about uh, Fermilab? Just go to the lab website or place? Oh, okay. Yeah. So let, let me just mention real quick why this, why this result was so interesting. So this was a result that was published sure. last, last April, the fir- first result from this experiment. It was, you know, this experiment was 10 years in the making. By the time you design it, you get it funded, you construct it, you take the data, you analyze the data. And we finally, after 10 years, a team of 200 scientists working on it, you know, these scientists are graduate students, postdocs, professors, national laboratory scientists. After, after 10 years of putting it together, we finally released the first result last year. And what we found is that the value we see experimentally is only, is only consistent with what you would expect from the known particles at about a one in 40,000 probability. So if you did the experiment 40,000 times, you might get a, a result as weird as the one we got. And so that's starting to look extremely unlikely. Like there must be new particles that are contributing to this quantum foam. And so the, the way we you know, determine eventually what those are has to do with working with theoret- theoreticians that go out and take various models for what that new physics can be. And then they try to predict if they can see the same level of deviation that we see in our measurement. And so that's that's what's come out. There's been uh, some interesting develop also developments since then. Also, part of that calculation requires knowing how often quarks are emerging um, in that part of that entourage, and that's a very difficult calculation to do. You can't do it from first principles with a pen and a piece of paper. Um, you can't do it through what we call perturbative calculations uh, because it's you know it's just a a calculation that you can't do can't do with the, the various tricks we have for doing analytical calculations. So what we do instead is we go to our, our our atom smasher friends who collide particles, and we ask them to just determine for us 
when you collide a positron and electron together, how often do you see quarks that come out? So that way, rather than having to rely on a theoretical calculation, we just compare it to a data-driven calculation of how, of how often that happens. And that's how we construct the theory for which we compare our experiment. The thing that's become very interesting in the last 10 years is that there has been an attempt to take all of this kind of um, physics involving quarks and gluons and be able to do calculations on the world's greatest supercomputers. You know, supercomputers have gotten to the point um, that you can start to think about, even if you can't do these calculations analytically, you can just let a computer simulation tell you the answer. And that computing is called lattice quantum chromodynamics. That's the technical name for it. As a, it's calculating the QCD forces um, on a computer, on a lattice, on a grid that mimics, mimics them in space. And some of those computer, pro, computer programs are now, now starting to tell us that maybe, maybe the answer here is that we're getting more quarks and gluons than we expect. And so if that's the case, you know, then that's probably the less exciting of the answers that would help, help explain it. Um, but that's an area that's still under development, and we'll see what they have to say. Um, in the meantime, the ex- data we published last year was about, you know, maybe a 16th to a 20th of what we will eventually publish. It was our very first result from our first year of data taking. So experimentally, we're going to improve our knowledge pretty dramatically over the next two or three years. And in the meantime, we'll see see how the theory works out. This is the handshake okay. we always have. So, Well, very good. And again, for people that want to follow up and learn more, where can they go? The best place to go would be um, just to type muon G minus two into your web browser and you'll find links to Fermilab and our experiment. It's a unique enough name. And, you know, you just spell that M-U-O-N space, the letter G, and then the minus sign and the number two. Um, otherwise, you can just go to the Fermilab. You can just type Fermilab also and, you know, you'll find it through the links at Fermilab. Well, very good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Richard. I appreciate you giving us a chance to talk about the the great science we do. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.